This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Man, you guys look all festive and everything. You'd think like it was Christmas or something. Hey, good to see you this morning. I hope that uh, things are going well for you. I hope that you've like, got everything together. Is that, hey, how many of you, I, you know, it's probably a dangerous pull. How many of you are ready? You're ready. You've got everything, right? Okay. How many of you, like, are thinking still about your Christmas list even as I'm talking right now? How many? Yeah, okay. There's lots, lots of honest people. Okay, so, uh, listen, uh, you know, it's always uh, one of the stressful things about this But um, this is where I tell myself repeatedly, remember, it's all about Jesus. It's not about those presents, and nobody will care if you forget. (laughs) Right, okay, well, anyhow, we're going to do our best to focus on Jesus this morning. Welcome to the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Next Sunday is Christmas Day. So let me remind you, we're going to be gathering on Christmas Eve on Saturday night, 4 or 6 o'clock. I hope you'll join us for either or or both. Uh, You'll certainly be welcome to be here for both, but we're going to do that instead of Sunday. So uh, uh, looking forward to that time uh, with you. And so, uh, you you know, if you think about it, technically, you know, in the Bible, night and then day, right? You get into Genesis, it's night and then day, which is a day. So I guess if you get right down to it, Saturday night is actually Sunday, and uh, you go home and ponder about that. Okay, so seriously though, listen, over the last two weeks we've been looking you know, at uh, these passages uh, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, bringing to light, helping us to understand what Christmas is really all about, pointing the way, giving us the fuller backdrop uh, we've referred to these as the historical manifold texts, and that phrase, historical manifold, is just simply a way of, of uh, giving a category uh, to texts that have a first, a historical prophecy, that is that the prophets, Isaiah, Micah, and others, were speaking to a situation in their day and time, and those prophecies had immediate implication for them. But those are also manifold texts in that while they had a historical direct meaning in its day and time, they also had a many unfoldings. In other words, there was, there was future sense, uh, a secondary meaning uh, that was more specific to the coming of Messiah. And so throughout those historical manifold texts uh, is this uh, bigger understanding. And so what we've done with these over the last few weeks especially like in the case of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, we went back and we looked first and foremost at the historical meaning of those texts for the people in Isaiah's day, dealing with the reign and rule of King Ahaz of Judah. Both those texts then also had a manifold sense in which it pointed to events 700 years later, but there was a a first an immediate sense of things in their day and time, and then pointing to the birth of Jesus, and even beyond that, in the case of Isaiah 9, pointing to the rule and reign of God, which we are longing for even now. In contrast, our very first text in this series we did from Genesis 3. 
Uh, that passage is not typically thought of in terms of a Christmas passage as a whole, uh, but it is a very straightforward prophecy about God's intent to rescue man from his own sinful destructiveness and faithlessness. And in particular, uh, it points to the, the birth of Christ, and we talked about how that kind of sets the tone for expectation that colors all the other things as we look at the manifold texts that they are building on that expectation of Messiah that came from Genesis 3. Today, as we wrap up this series on Advent, we're going to use another classical prophecy like Genesis 3. In other words, this is not a historical manifold prophecy. It is more of a straightforward prophecy. Uh, it is also, just like Genesis 3, the interesting thing, the manifold texts are really popular at Christmas time. The ones that seem to be directly Genesis 3 and Micah 5 are very rarely ever taught on at Christmas time. I don't know why that is. I, you know, I guess it's just too simple or something. I don't know, but no, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, I don't really know why that is, but we are going to be looking at Micah chapter 5. And part of that, I think, is simply this. When it comes to Micah, Micah is not a very popular book to preach on. If you just do a browser search, right, you pull up your internet browser, you know, whatever one you use, and uh, you start Googling the book of Micah and look for series done on the book of Micah, you will find out that Micah is just like one of the like, most unpopular books in the whole Bible. In fact, if you thought about it for just a moment, you know, if I asked you, what is the book of Micah about? Most people just kind of go, uh, don't know. I remember I read it in my yearly plan to read through the Bible that, you know, I sometimes finished. But, you know, the reality is that for most of us, we've, you know, Micah is not one of those books that we go, oh man, I love all those things in the book of Micah. So Micah, listen, here's the thing about Micah. It, it was written, he is a contemporary with Isaiah, but the difference is Isaiah like spends a lot of time kind of trying to shore up Ahaz, shore up Hezekiah, shore up the other kings, you know, and, and encourage them. Uh, Micah is a little more direct, you know. Uh, Micah is, you know, a tough uh, uh, book to read, uh, you know, for a number of reasons, particular, what we're going to be talking today is that he's talking about the judgment that was to come upon Judah in the time of Ahaz uh, and uh, following with Hezekiah and so forth. And what he says essentially is judgment is not only going to come upon them for things that went wrong under the rule of Ahaz, but in spite of Hezekiah's righteous rule, the people of God were still looking at going into captivity in Babylon. He's just warning them. It does, you know, that even though your king's been a good person, here's the reality, your nation has continued to go the way it was already going. There's not been a real turnaround in terms of the hearts of the people. And so when you come to Micah, you know, there's not a whole lot of things like, you know, uh, you know, there's not a good sermon on five ways to love your job, six ways to love your spouse, or seven ways that you can be more successful in life, which of course we know is the real reason the Bible was written. You can laugh about that later. Um, but if you'll remember from the last two weeks, instead it's pointing out, it, it's in the classic role of the prophetic. First, 
to remind people of what God's instructions actually are and to point them toward fulfilling them. Secondly, to warn people of the natural consequences of not following those instructions. And then thirdly, to give them a hope and a future should they repent from their sin. So Michael just, Micah just follows that uh, model verbatim. And so when we get to our kind of Christmassy text this morning, I think you'll see that it's couched right in the middle of that kind of judgment language. Probably not going to be your favorite Christmas text from here out, but, but I do think it's really important in our discussion, so we're going to do it together anyhow. So Micah chapter 5, if you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have. The one in your lap is my favorite. Let's take a look. Micah chapter 5, and we read these words. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and they shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads into our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds, eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from Yahweh, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up for your, uh, over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares Yahweh, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land, throw down all your strongholds, cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall no more uh, have tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities, and in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, as I said, Micah is a contemporary with Isaiah. And so they both served as prophets in the court of King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, uh, and uh, one of them into the reign of Manasseh. All we're talking about the late 700s, uh, Manasseh would lead into the, uh, the early 600s. But uh, if we uh, begin right there, you know, in that, uh, in that context, 
we want to think in terms of what is happening around them from the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. If you'll recall, when we were in Isaiah 7, uh, if you were here with us, we were talking about how Assyria uh, had kind of left Judah alone for the most part uh, and was really pressing hard on the northern kingdom, on Samaria and north Israel, pressing hard on the Syrians. And uh, the Assyrians, uh, you know, when they were uh, attacking their neighbors, kind of their way of doing it, there was four stages to their oppression. It began with, we're going to wipe you out, but if you want to play, you know, a little insurance, you know, we'll make sure nothing happens to you, you know, so you just give us a little money and uh, we'll, we'll be your protectors, you know, which was kind of a joke in many ways, but yet at the same time it was true because nobody was going to mess with Assyria. They were the world's greatest superpower at the time and they were able to oppress everyone around them and kept law and order through their oppression. Now, the thing is that anytime a nation is a great superpower and used as the policeman of the world, it does not mean that that's a license to do whatever you want. And if you govern, if you keep the peace in a way that is oppressive, uh, one of the things that's clear in the Scripture over and over again is that God keeps record of that and will bring them to account eventually. So even while He's using them in a way, He's given them permission to, and He's given them might and power and authority and money and resources and all those kind of things, that that's not necessarily a blessing. And that superpowers who confuse God's giving them power and authority to govern the earth with His blessing over everything they do, will be destroyed. In this case, Assyria is on the verge of judgment and doesn't even know it. The last king of Assyria that will be a superpower king is a guy by the name of Sennacherib, and he is powerful indeed. whole lot spoken about him in the Bible. I'll reference some of those passages here in just a moment. But the reality is that uh, as Sennacherib is dealing with Babylon and the Medo-Persians to the east and north, and he is in the midst of dealing with them, he's busy. And these two kings, the one in, a, one in Syria and the one in northern Israel, who are in about the third stage of oppression, about to be taken over, about to have a new king appointed, thought they had a great idea. Hey, in the middle of all of this, while he's busy fighting these rising superpowers, what we'll do is we will, the three of us, we'll get together with Judah and we'll rise up against him and he won't, they won't be able to handle all three of our armies at once and be fighting on the east and we will kick Assyria out of our lands. Isaiah had warned repeatedly, do not try this. What you need in the face of your weak army, your weak nation, your weak position, your terrible leadership, I'm paraphrasing, but that's really what he was saying, in light of all those things, it would be a bad idea for you to try and with your remaining resources, raise up an army and to go fight against him. What you need to do is you need, this is your doctrine of appeasement, Pay the tribute, let him defend you from the nations around you, 
and do not get mixed up in this mess that these guys are about to do. As they continue to press, they threaten, if you do not go along with us, we know the opposing political party in your lands would like to have a different king. We will put somebody else in your place. We'll put that, a guy that's opposing you in your place, and we'll just go to war anyhow, to which Isaiah warned him again. Don't do this. Remember, there is a child going to be born in your midst, and before that child is able to tell his right hand from his left hand to know right from wrong, these other two nations that are threatening you are going to be done away with. We get to Isaiah chapter 9, and they have been invaded. Not exactly the scenario that Ahaz was expecting when Isaiah told him it's all going to be okay. Anybody here ever heard from the Lord, everything's going to be okay, and then it didn't go the way you thought it should, and you thought, maybe I didn't hear from the Lord. Or maybe you thought, maybe God isn't, with, maybe God isn't as faithful as I thought he was. Which is exactly what the enemy wants us to do in those moments when we're under trial and fire. In the midst of that, Isaiah reminds him again, listen, before this child, look, the child's been born, and now that this child is here, I'm telling you, before this child is able to eat the curds and the honey, before he knows his right from his left, I'm telling you, these two kings will be no more. And what we know from history is, indeed, that was the truth. And even though they were under siege, by these two nations, those two nations never managed to take over the land. They never managed to take the rule and reign away from King Ahaz. Along the way, King Ahaz uh, decides uh, not to just really trust the Lord, and in that process begins to consult mediums, begins to worship other gods, and the nation just gets in worse and worse condition, even though they are saved from their neighbors in the moment, it's not good. You ever survive something to think maybe survival wasn't any better than the thing you survived? That's where Israel is in, or I mean, Judah is in that moment. Things are not good spiritually. But things are good financially. So even though the nation is bankrupt, they're very wealthy. Things are going well. Their economy is prospering. And they become convinced, well, see, God didn't really care about how corrupt our rulers are. God didn't really care about how things are going. And God is, we're, we're still the favored people of God. Micah steps into this situation and begins to tell them, What's really what? If you and I were to begin in Micah chapter 1, it opens with a very dramatic pronouncement of judgment against both northern and southern Israel, against Samaria and against Jerusalem. Now, like I said, King Hezekiah, when he comes to the throne, he restores a lot of things, and he is a righteous man. But the nation isn't righteous. The nation continues on in the same behavior. And so in the middle of that, he basically tells them, listen, there's really no difference between northern Israel and southern Israel except you have a, a godly king. 
And because you have a godly king, I'm, there are some things I'm going to do for you, but the reality is, is judgment is coming. In that case, in the case of northern Israel, in short order, they were carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. Sennacherib finished them off for the rebellion. Judah, on the other hand, will continue for another 110 years. Sounds like a long time. The Lord is patient, wanting none to perish. But in the backdrop of history, really not that long. Chapter 2 begins with a series of woes or judgments against their neighbors who have oppressed them, against everyone else that has given uh, Israel and given Judah a, a bad time, uh, against Syria and the others. And, and, and he, in the midst of it, he begins to speak about a remnant of God's people. And yet what Yahweh will do for that Yahweh, even as he is passing judgment on their two nations. Chapter 3, then is a direct rebuke of the leaders of both kingdoms for playing politics and just giving people what they wanted to hear instead of standing for what was just and right. Wow. Can you imagine if... Oh, never mind, okay. It includes rebukes against some of the prophets. Because there were a lot of false prophets who were telling people just what they wanted to hear and telling them how they were still the favored nation and that God was going to make them mighty in battle. So instead of being the voice of God, they decided to be the voice of their political party. And God says specifically, warning them, you will not escape judgment for speaking these lies in my name. Chapter 4 begins a proclamation, then, of hope and a future, which is code in the Old Testament for, after I judge you, I will restore you. Anytime you hear those words, a hope and a future, whether you're talking about Jeremiah 29, 11, or any other of those passages in which it uses that phrase, a hope and a future, that means read the verses before, judgment is coming upon the nation and I'm just telling you that, hold on, I will rescue the righteous remnant even as I pass judgment on the people of God because judgment begins with whom? The household of faith. Judgment doesn't begin with the nations. Judgment begins with those who are supposed to be righteous. Which is one of those things when people are talking about judgment on our nation that can I just say, can I just remind us, church, not until it starts with us. Maybe we shouldn't be in such a hurry for God to judge and we should be in a hurry to hit our faces to the floor and repent. Just a thought, just a thought. So then, that hope and that future goes all the way through chapter 4 and chapter 5, which we just read. Then chapters 6 and 7 are kind of a summary of the prophecy. But for our purpose today, chapter 5 
It's all about God's promise to restore His people despite their sin. Now, I want to say this because, I, you know, and I know I say this often, but it, we've just got hundreds of years of preaching that says, Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Old Testament law, New Testament grace. And that's not how it works. Instead, we have, across the whole witness of the Bible, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy. And then is repeated multiple times through the Psalms. That's not a New Testament verse. The message that the Lord is gracious and, a, and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, is the foundation of the Old Testament. And that's how it gets to be the foundation of the New Testament and of forgiveness and of eternal life. Because if you don't have the right Old Testament foundation, you will build a New Testament foundation that completely removes it from the grand story of who God is and what real righteousness is like. As we look into Micah chapter 5, remember that I said chapter 4, uh, be, after the rebuke, begins this whole thing of the, the hope and the future, the follow-up to the rebuke. So then in 5.1, begins telling us that the Assyrian invasion, which was happening right at that very moment, was a warning from God. He describes it as a smack on the cheek of the judge. Seemingly, in the natural, what it looked like was, see, King Hezekiah, because he was a good king and because he was a righteous man, began to, like, see the, the benefits of, of what was happening in the nation, that there was this like small revival going on. It wasn't sweeping the nation or anything, but there were good things happening, and God was showing the nation favor because he was a good man. And in the midst of it, he gets the idea, you know what? Some of these prophets are saying that we can take on Assyria, and I believe in the name of the Lord my God, and so even though Isaiah says don't go to battle and Micah said don't go to battle, you know what? I bet you God is with us. We can do it. Come on, guys. What do you think? Everybody went, yeah. And then they got their hat handed to them or something else. A smack on the cheek. It looked like in the natural like a response to Hezekiah's rebellion against King Sennacherib that like Sennacherib was just putting him back in his place. But the restraint... The restraint on the part of King Sennacherib is holy the Lord. See, it was really, it was really, according to Micah, about, about Judah's rebellion toward God. In particular, he brings up that how they have prospered financially and the wealthy are oppressing the poor and that he will have nothing to do with it. But because of Hezekiah's repentance... God says, I will not let Assyria destroy them. It will be a smack on the cheek. Instead, if you and I were to go to, say, Isaiah chapter 36 through 38, or to take a look in 2 Chronicles 32 or 2 Kings 19, 
which I would encourage you to do, maybe not right this moment. But instead, what God did was God destroyed Sennacherib for his blasphemy against God. See, what happened in the midst of it is they started to do and to go to battle against Sennacherib foolishly. Sennacherib says, Do you not know that Yahweh is the one who sent me to destroy you? Do you not know that I am your policeman? I'm the one who's the watchdog that was sent. Your God, the Yahweh God, sent me to destroy you. And besides that, he couldn't save you if he wanted to. Oops. You were doing real well. You know, if you just learned when to shut up, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sure no, no political leaders ever needed to know when to shut up. But anyhow, um, and, and so if he had just shut up at the right moment, so, and, but he didn't, and so God says, here comes judgment. And he wipes out Assyria. It's all right there in your Bible. But, and this is a big but, even though King Hezekiah was repentant, because the ruling class of Judah were not repentant, the warnings continue about judgment. And he says, and they will not be repealed. See, God is warning Judah that this is imminent. Now, you might think to yourself, imminent? Like, you said 110 years. One of the things you got to remember is every time you read in the Bible the word soon, <laughs> you know, like remember the book of Revelation and it says these things are soon to come to pass. When soon? Soon in the mind of God. But can I tell you, listen, that whole thing when we were talking about the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger abounding in love. Shouldn't that like be one of those things that makes us think that? Like I know you and I just flip the page and 110 years have passed and so we go, wow, God, whoa, just right, man, they did this and then they didn't even get a chance to repent. 110 years. I think that's pretty good. You know, I think that's pretty patient. I think that's pretty compassionate. I think that is evidence. Anybody here, you just waited 110 years before you got even? Anyone? Anyone? No? No? So this hope in this future part begins in verse 2. The city of Bethlehem, the sleepy little village where King David was born, is declared to be the land where the successor to David will be born. And not just any successor, not the son of Hezekiah, who turned out to be one of the most wicked kings ever. His name was Manasseh but the true successor in the grandest sense, he defines this one as the one who is the ancient of days. Think about Matthew, you know, chapter 22, verse 6, you know, when we read uh, that, that verse and taken, lifted from its context just to give this passing glimpse. You and I read the Christmas story there in Matthew 2, and it makes us all feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, but remember, it was spoken in the midst of judgment, so there's that. But there is one who is the Ancient of Days, the Lord strong and mighty, God himself, the King born in Bethlehem, 
is to be the ancient of days. But also, he's hinting at how this king will fulfill the promise made to David that his throne will be eternal. Then verse 3, we're told that until such time, meaning until he is born, God is going to give Judah up to be judged. It won't be Assyria because of Sennacherib's blasphemies. It won't be in Hezekiah's day because of Hezekiah, but it was coming. It was absolutely coming. And like I said, it did. There were seven kings from Hezekiah to the end of the kingdom, 110 years. Only one more godly king. Actually, could you go ahead and put that that shot of the seven kings up? So Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, uh, the most wicked king in all of Judah's history, maybe even the most wicked king in all of Israel's history. He was just that vile. He's the one who brought about uh, offering children uh, in sacrifice to be burned in the fire to Molech and things like that. Uh, Ammon, Ammon lasted two years. Josiah, the, the last righteous king uh, to be in Judah, uh, lasted for 31 years. Jehoahaz, three months. Jehoiakim, 11 years. Jehoiachin, three months, 10 days. Longer than Jehoahaz. But, um, and then Zedekiah, who is the last king, who reigned for 11 years, and he was carried off into Babylon along with Daniel and others. The verse says that trouble would continue from Hezekiah until she, meaning the one prophesied about in Genesis 3 and Isaiah 7 that I spoke about earlier in this series, she would give birth to the Messiah. But until such time, there would be no rest in Judah. And if you just look at that history, that 110 years, it is just tumultuous. Even under, even under Josiah, it's just tremendously tumultuous. They were constantly at war with their enemies all around them and, and, and throughout one situation after another. But he tells them, then because of this new king born in Bethlehem, there would be restoration, an end to the division of Israel. Verse 4, And this king would shepherd his people by the strength of Yahweh, and his rule, his kingdom, will extend to the very ends of the earth, and all of God's people will dwell secure, because he will be their peace. Then verses 5 and 6, So they will no longer fear the Assyrians or anyone else. Verse 7, And then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples and will be a people among all the nations, meaning the gospel of the kingdom and eternal life would graft the Gentiles into this restored Israel. That's you and me. Verses 8 through 15 go on to detail how his Governance would restore righteousness to the land, ridding the land of idolatry, ending invasions and other similar images of rescue. But the promise is simply this, that God, the one true God, would rescue his people by this one born in Bethlehem. Amen? 
I hope this series has been life-giving to you. I know like when we're reading about these judgments and some of the, the history of those kings and things like that, like, I mean, those are not positive things, right? And, and yet here's the thing that I know is that even in those, that imagery of judgment, uh, the point uh, of, of pointing to what God wants to do what, how God's desire to be in relationship, to be in fellowship, that God wants restoration, that God wants peace, that God wants us to know Him and to experience what life is like when, we, when we're fulfilling the things of the kingdom, when we're living that kingdom life, when you and I are, are living out that you know, experience of the kingdom of God, that's His desire, that's His want for us. It was never... Listen, it was never about keeping a set of rules. It was never about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It was always this idea, ever from the very beginning, quoting from the, the, just what Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy. This is the first and greatest commandment, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. See, that's the vision of the kingdom. Loving God, loving people, and until he returns, pass it on. That's the invitation. It really is. And so I hope that your confidence is growing in God's plan. I hope that, God, your, that your confidence in God's faithfulness has increased throughout this series. And I hope that as you head into this Christmas, that you go so with a vision for going into the new year to see his kingdom come in your life, in the life of those around you. Let's stand together, shall we? Let me invite prayer team members. Go ahead and come on up. So if you have any needs this morning, you know, I know that as we find ourselves in this season, sometimes it comes down to there are, there's family coming to visit, or maybe you're going to visit family. Uh, maybe um, it's the stress of, of travel. Maybe it's the, the stress of the Christmas shopping. Maybe it's just the stress of everybody else being stressed out. Maybe it's the end of the year reports that you're trying to gather information, put things together. Maybe it's finals. It could be any number of things that are pressing on you right now. And um, just that the peace of God is not reigning in your heart. Maybe the sense of expectation has been quieted by struggles, personal life. Maybe things that are happening. Maybe the grief of a loved one, the loss of a loved one. It could be any number of things that are pulling at your heartstrings this morning. And so what should be a moment of great joy and a sense of expectation, of looking forward, uh, is lost in the midst of dealing with what is happening in your life right now. And so I just want to invite you. We've got prayer team members up, and, and if you need your head lifted, if you need some people to pray with you, to commit to praying with you from here, like let me invite you to come get some prayer. Otherwise, I sure hope I'll see you Saturday night. Join us. Let's have a good time together. And most of all, 
Merry Christmas. God bless you. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.